wisest man who ever lived once said that everything has its season. Yes, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to fight. A time to heal. But what about everything else? Everything in between. Seasons like this. Seasons so utterly forgettable. We forget they're even seasons at all. Until one day, things change. And suddenly, we're reminded with stark clarity how closely the darkness is always at hand. Where is God in my anxiety? Where is God in my depression? And where is God amidst all my fears that he feels so distant? And we so often do question, how? How could it possibly get any worse? answer we want, the answer we fear, that we are alone, the pain we feel, it has no cure, there is no end, our restlessness is as hopelessly futile as, as our cries for mercy or even relief, and wave after wave after a wave keeps crashing down on us, revealing every crack, exposing every weakness. And as much as we might cling to the hope of a savior, we sink to our knees and we throw our hands in despair and we cry out with everything we have left. Let it end. Let it end, God. Please, let it end. And then, a still small voice replies, It is finished. Yes, my child, it was and is and will be finished because the light shines through the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it because he is with you and he is for you and he will not forsake you no matter what seasons come no matter what time it is under heaven his love is here for you it always was it forever will be he walks with you through the darkness through the unending rain because you are his and that is something that no season can ever take from you The year is 870 B.C. Israel is ruled by the evil king Ahab and his even more villainous wife, Jezebel. The people of Israel are consumed in the adulterous worship of the false gods of other nations. Instead of worshiping their god Yahweh, the one true God, they are consumed with idol worship. God sends his prophet Elijah to King Ahab. 
Elijah tells Ahab that because of the nation's worship of the false gods of Baal, he, a drought will come upon the land and there will be no rain for three years. Judgment is coming in the form of this drought and this marks the beginning really of Elijah's ministry in 870 B.C. Here's what uh, says, then, then Ahab said, saw Elijah and said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Like, there's no rain. And so as they meet up, what happens is at the end of this, uh, this three-and-a-half-year drought, they meet up. God sends uh, Elijah to Ahab, and Ahab is blaming uh, Elijah for the fact there's no rain. It's like, like he has the power to stop it from raining. He goes on here. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And maybe you remember this story. It's that epic showdown. It's now 867 B.C., the epic impending battle between the false prophets and Elijah on Mount Carmel. And it's an, it's an amazing thing, right? Because the false prophets put out their sacrifices and they call on their gods from morning till noon and nothing happens. And, 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 then, and then Elijah kind of mocks them because nothing's happening and they cut themselves and they cry out louder and still nothing happens. And then finally, Elijah gets to step up and take over and he repairs the altar. Here's what it says. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And so he's he's repaired the altar and he's put the sacrifice there. Answer me, O Lord, he says. Answer me that the, this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and slaughtered them there. What an amazing showdown, right? I mean, Elijah versus 850 false prophets. And Elijah wins this amazing battle. And God shows up in incredible power and force. And you would think that that would just warm and thrill the heart of Elijah. Like he would be like, whoa, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Especially when all the people have cried out and are, in a sense, turning back to God. But the story doesn't end there. There is a twist to the story, if you know how the story goes. And I think most of us are familiar with it. The twist is this, is that Ahab told Jezebel, All that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. And it's not surprising, right? It's not surprising that Jezebel, this villainous woman Jezebel, it's not surprising that she's angry. It's not surprising that she would make a threat. But isn't it surprising 
But then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. And there's that twist, Jezebel's threat and Elijah's anxiety. And it's just shocking. Like, how, how can you stand up to 850 false prophets and come out the victor? And then, hours later, cower in fear to this one woman. Now, it may have been he was just discouraged and depressed. He might have thought maybe King Ahab and Jezebel would come to their senses and they would repent of their wrongdoings and they would turn back to God. And maybe he was just uh, discouraged. I don't know. It sounds absurd. It seems unreasonable. But that's exactly what Elijah has done. And as you read on in the story, he runs for like 40 days. God even helps him along the way. But he runs for 40 days and he finds a cave to hide out in. He's in some very deep depression. Today, our key scripture today, we'll go back to Elijah later on, Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Today, the toxicity of our anxiety. And, you know, we think about this issue of anxiety. I was thinking it's really just a very practical terms. It's a daily issue. We talked about fear earlier in the year, which is kind of why I didn't really think that we would go in this direction, but God kept pushing me back here. It's like there was something to be said this morning about anxiety, and I think it is. It's a day-to-day proposition. We continually are dealing with those things that cause us to be anxious. We see that in the life there of Elijah. Like he can have this great victory. It doesn't make sense. Have this great victory and then hours later be consumed with anxiety and fear and depression and run and hide and we, we, we try to wrap our head around that. It's like, how does that even make sense? It doesn't make sense. And we all go through that. We all go through that. The truth is we're living in times that are riddled with anxiety. Like the enemy wants us to be filled with anxiety. He just simply does. We're living... Think about the times we're in, right? Gas is $5 a gallon. Inflation is nailing us at the grocery store. We're running out of baby formula. Uh, Monkeypox is the next pandemic on the horizon. We've got all the school shootings going on that are, that are immediately weaponized and politicized, and then we're afraid they're going to come in and try to take our guns away. And on top of all that, we got World War III brewing across the country, right? or over the, just over the hill. And in all of this stuff going on, we ask a lot of questions and we're dealing with equal amounts of anxiety. And it brought me back to last week's message, right? What I say last week in the message is that we are fighting a spiritual war and that's not a conspiracy theory. And I think a lot of the stuff here, if we're really use discernment, we can see that kind of fits in to some ways the spiritual war that we're in and how Satan wants to bring us down and discourage us. And, and are there forces that are against our country? Well, certainly there are. There are forces that have always been against the freedoms we have here in America certainly is. I was listening this week to a show called And We Know. It's a Christian-based news program. Found him a few months back. <clears throat> he was talking about a movie in the 70s called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Never heard of the movie. Starred David Bowie, so I don't know much about that. But um, well, he was saying, maybe some people have seen the movie. Anyway, I think he said that the people who did the movie admitted that it was loosely, or maybe not so loosely, based on 
the man who fell to earth. Who was that? That was Satan. And Showtime, maybe you know Showtime, one of those movie outlets, they have just uh, put out a new series called The Man Who Fell to Earth. The lead actor plays an extraterrestrial being with planet-saving powers who falls to earth. It's going to save us from all our anxiety and all our problems and all our fears. The truth is that our anxiety can be toxic if we do not learn how to deal with it. At the same time, the answer to our anxiety is an antidote that will do more than simply calm our fears. It will make us more aware of the very presence of God in our life, all around us, and all that we're facing, in all that we're dealing with. Today in Philippians 4, we're going to just see two simple, really, two, two paradigms or two directions of this message. We're going to see an unreasonable worry, and then we're going to see an illogical peace. There's an unreasonable worry, and there's an illogical peace, and we're going to just talk about that today. Anxiety is a part of the spiritual battle. So just be aware of that. The spiritual battle we're in, anxiety is a part of it. Like Satan will use anything he can to bring us down, to discourage us, to defeat us, to keep us from running the race, right? To keep us from being all that we can be for Christ in this world. Today's big idea, as believers, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. We're going to see that in the message. As believers, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. Just think about what that means today, and we'll start here with an unreasonable worry. Three simple steps of an unreasonable worry, and it starts here with this one. Don't worry, be happy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And how many knew that famous song came out of the Bible? <laughs> I don't know if the one who sang that song or wrote those lyrics thought that, but, but the truth is, you might say, do I have to always be happy? What if I don't feel like being happy? And there is a sense here that the word used here is rejoice and the root of that is joy. And so the idea really is don't worry, be joyful. But I used happy for kind of for a reason here. But, but think about this joy and happiness are different. Joy is transcendent versus happiness, which is circumstantial. So like I have this joy in Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It transcends anything I go through. No matter what anxiety-ridden problem I face, I can have joy. But listen, if I buy a car off some guy $8,000 and buy a car and take it home and next week find out the guy lied to me and it ripped me off and cheated me, I'm not going to be very happy. But I can have joy. I can have joy, but I won't be very happy in that moment and that's just a fact of the matter. James 1, 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So even in those moments of anxiety, and worry and fear and such not. I can have joy, and that joy can actually make me stronger in my faith. Don't worry, be happy. And, the, and here's the key. When we have that don't worry, be happy, the, the reality is, is that the emphasis is not on happiness. The emphasis is on don't worry. You don't have to worry. Because worry is always a choice. Every day, every time we face something, worry is simply a choice. And we need to know that. If we jump ahead in chapter 4 here in Philippians 4, just a few verses, here's what Paul said. And, and, and just understand the whole book of Philippians is all about, that's the, one of the main themes of the book, joy. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord. He's telling them to rejoice. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. That's actually the New King James Version. I, I should have I, I mismarked that. <clears throat> and I use that because the very last sentence there uses that word distress. You have done well that you shared in my distress. Paul admits that he's in distress. And, and yet think about that. Like, I'm in great distress. I have great joy. Like, how is that? Like, we wouldn't think, right? And what is, what's the root word of distress? It's stress. How many think when you're in stress, you can have joy? We wouldn't put those two together, but the reality is when you know Christ, yeah, you can find that contentment and that amidst that distress. I can be in distress and be content at the same time. I can be. I, I, I love this article. I probably shared it before. A Danish health survey asked almost 10,000 people between ages 36 and 52, in your everyday life, do you experience conflicts with any of the following people? Your partner, children, other family members, friends, or neighbors? 11 years later, 422 of them were no longer living. That's a typical number. What's compelling, the researchers noted, is that the people who answered always or often in any of these cases were two to three times more likely to be among the dead. And the deaths were from standard causes, cancer, heart disease, alcohol-related, liver disease, etc., not murder. The researchers concluded stressful social relations are associated with increased mortality risk among middle-aged men and women. That's why they recommended that we develop what they call skills in handling worries and demands from close social relations as well as conflict management. But listen to this. But in case you think that all conflict is bad, people who said they never experienced conflict from social relationships had a slightly higher mortality rate than those who seldom do. In other words, perhaps a little conflict is good for your health. And there's some truth in that. Like, sports teams know that. You can have two teams in the Super Bowl playing, right? And they can be equally you know, competitive and good. One team maybe had a really rough year and they had a lot of close games and a lot of tough appointment, uh, opponents. And the other team, maybe they just sailed through the season and never had a tough game all year long. And which team's going to do better? The team that faced adversity. Like adversity does something to us. Like it does strengthen us. It does help us. So there is something about distress when we know how to handle it properly that can make us stronger. We can find distress even in our, even in contentment, even in our distress. Don't worry, be happy, or be joyful at least, but know that your worry is always a choice. Don't worry, be reasonable, right? Don't worry, be reasonable. As believers, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. We just need to be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the, the Greek word here, one of the ideas behind the Greek word is the word appropriate. Like worry is not appropriate for us to know Christ. If Christ is my identity, worry is not appropriate. It just isn't. Now we can see this in a couple of ways, right? It's, it's, it's uh, unreasonable considering the nearness of Christ. Worry is unreasonable. I don't think I maybe said that right on there. But it's unreasonable considering the nearness of Christ. Or Yeah, it's reasonable to to be at peace and not worry, considering the nearness of Christ. Look what he says there. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
And, and commentators have always debated whether that means like the Lord is close to us, like he indwells us, or the Lord's coming soon for us. Like we always debate what that means. I, I actually think that it probably means the Lord is with us because I don't think that he would have had Paul say, hey, uh, the Lord is coming soon for you if he knew he wasn't going to come for 2,000 years. He wouldn't tell the Philippians, hey, I'm close to you. I'm coming soon for you if he wasn't coming for 2,000 years. So I think it probably does mean the Lord is at hand. The Lord indwells us. He is so close to us. And so it's reasonable for us to not worry because God is so near. But at the same time, it's also reasonable because of the character of Christ. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Like people should look in my life and see Christ. They should see the identity of Christ. They should see I'm someone who's at peace with life and I don't worry. And anxiety doesn't get the best of me. Because why? Because Christ is my life. If he wouldn't be anxious, then I don't need to be anxious. What do people see in me? What is my reputation? In fact, what is a reputation? But the common opinions others have formed of me. So what opinions do people have about you? That you're an anxious person? That you, you get riled easily? That you uh, get come unglued easy? Or that you just have a, a peace in the storms of life? And how attractive is that when we do have that peace for the world to see? Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety, it'll weigh us down, it'll slow us down, but a good word will make us glad. I just think about Elijah back in that cave again. Is it not unreasonable for Elijah to be worried, right? It's unreasonable. Like he just defeated 850 false prophets. And now there's this one woman who said something to him and he's just like shaking in his boots and runs off to hide. It's crazy. And you know what's really fascinating about the story? And, and, and uh, as I got into this, I really, well, anyway, I'll just tell you this. We see this all the time. The story of Elijah on Mount, Car Mount Carmel parallels the gospel again. You see the gospel in it. You want to know what's fascinating? It seems that Elijah was born in 900 B.C. And uh, I found at least that's one, 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 uh, <clears throat> one source said that. The other sources all seem to say that he began his earthly ministry. He began his public ministry when he called out this drought in 870 B.C. Three and a half years later, he went up onto Mount Carmel and won that great victory. He's born in 900 B.C. In 870 B.C., he starts his ministry. How old is he? How old is he when he goes to Mount Calvary or Mount, Mount Carmel and defeats those false prophets? How old is he? 33. Wow. And there we see it again, over and over and over again, how God takes us back to the Old Testament and puts a spotlight on Christ and a spotlight on the cross and a spotlight on the gospel. And you see it right there in the life of, of Elijah. Pretty, pretty amazing. And so with that in mind, it's, it's reasonable that we would not worry, that we would be at peace and be considering the gospel. Because the battle's been won. The victory's been won. That's what we say to Elijah. Elijah, you just won the battle. Why are you scared? And that's our reality. Like Christ went to the cross. It is finished. I loved how he said that in that video, right? Like, like there's a still small voice that says, it is finished. The battle has been won. We're just waiting on the enemy to realize he's lost and to surrender and to stop fighting us. But we've won the victory. So we don't need to... We don't need to... Uh, be worried. We just simply need to be. Here, let's go on here. 
Number three, don't worry, be wise. Don't worry, be wise. Do not be anxious about anything. Like there's nothing we need to be anxious about. I've said it before, you know, worry is like a rocking chair. It's a lot of work to get you nowhere, right? You just sit there and you just worry. And some of us like, some of us find a lot of comfort in that rocking chair. We like to sit in that rocking chair. We just like to worry and worry and worry. It's unreasonable and it's unwise. Psalm 127.2, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest Treating the bread, of, uh, uh, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Some of us work pretty hard at our worry. You, you, you work hard at your worry, when in reality all you have to do is rest and trust in God's plans. Jesus said it this way, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that worry is worthless. Like it's a waste of time. It's worthless. It, it accomplishes nothing. Don't worry. Be wise. One of the dumbest things you can do is sit there and worry and worry and worry and worry about something. Ephesians 5. Here's what Paul said. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Or, another translation says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. When you think about that, that once we fell into sin and and, and the reality is all time became corrupted and everything we do has no eternal value anymore. Like, if I don't know Christ, I have, my life has no eternal value. But if I come to Christ, then I can go out and I can do good deeds, I can do good works, I can impact this world, I can touch other people's lives, but I can have an eternal impact. I can redeem the time because the days are evil. There's a deep thought tied to all of that there. And we just simply need to understand that. We are called to redeem the time, not worry about it. Like, redeem the time. and It's, it's a waste of time. It's worthless to worry and worry and worry and worry. Redeem the time. We'll talk about how we can redeem the time in, in a minute rather than just worrying about it. But that's the reality. And a worry really accomplishes nothing other than it harms our health. And worry feeds our worry because if you, if you, if you worry, then you just... You learn how to worry. You learn how to handle your problems. You just worry next time. You're going to worry the next time. And, and worries kind of, kind of compile themselves on each other. And then it gets heavier and it gets bigger and it gets out of control. One thing I think is interesting is understanding the difference between worry and concern. There's a, there is a difference there. Like worry tends to ask rhetorical questions, right? Worry is like, oh, how will I pay my bills? How am I going to survive? Where will I find a new job, right? You lose your job and you, you just have all this worry. But then take the other person who lost his job and he's not worried, but he's concerned. And think about the kind of statements, the kind of questions that he will ask looking for real answers. Like, what are my bills for this month and how am I going to pay them? What do I need to, 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 survive, to survive this month? What can I do about this situation? I wonder who is hiring right now. I wonder what skills I have that could help me get hired. What is God communicating to me in this season of life? And there's a big difference between asking those simple, irrational kind of rhetorical questions that I don't really expect an answer to. I'm just worried versus questions that I'm really saying, okay, Lord, what am I going to do about this? And I'm, 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 I'm thinking wisely about the situation. How can I get through this situation? 
Worry is often, here's the other thing about worry that I think is, is true. Worry is often faced in isolation where concern is shared. Like we worry, we, we just kind of stew in our worry and we just kind of get consumed in our worry to ourselves. When we're concerned about something, we may really go to somebody, a friend, we might say, okay, what do you think I should do about this situation? How should I handle this situation? Where should I look for a job? What, what do you see in me that, that uh, could help me as I look for a new job? And, and the, the reality is we can face things in isolation or we can share our concerns. You see, concern is actually is acting wisely and redeeming the time. Worry is just a waste of time. As believers, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. We need to be happy, reasonable, wise. Because our identity is in Christ, we just need to be. And we need to let people see our true character, our true identity in Christ. Which takes us to the other side of the equation today then, from an unreasonable worry to an illogical peace. Like he talks here about an illogical peace. He, he talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, there, there's a peace that just won't make sense. Like, people will say, how can you be at such peace? And it won't make sense. It'll be illogical. But it's not illogical. It's not illogical. If you are being who you are in Christ. So let's look at this. There, there are just four ways we're going to look at this here. And, and it's rooted on, here, here's the solution to this problem. Like, how do I experience this peace? And it's found in verses 8 and 9. The eight and nine have a solution really for us and how things operate. And there's, there's a principle in here, a process in here. We talked about it earlier in this series. Uh, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, Paul goes on. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is uh, uh, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When you have learned uh, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so let me give you here four things, just, just four applications here. The first one is I need to be careful in my thinking. And this really is what everything hinges on. It goes, again, notice it goes back to our mindset. It goes back to our thoughts. It goes back. God has, God has given, made us a new person, given us a new identity, but it's how we think in life that is so crucial. I need to be careful in my thinking. And, and what you have here in this passage that is so fascinating is that verses 8 and 9 are both driven by a different verb. Verse 8 has a verb that drives it. Verse 9 has a verb that drives it. And these two verbs go together. And we talked about this earlier in the series, and you'll see what I mean as we go through this. But in verse 8, he says, think on these things, right? That's the word to think. The Greek there, it's kind of the idea of taking an inventory or an estimate or uh, concluding about your life. It's like, think on these things. Your identity is in Christ. This is who you are. Now think on these things. Dwell on certain things. There's that phrase, you've heard it before. I don't know. There, there's a fancy term for a fancy phrase for it. I don't know. But I think, therefore, I am. And it simply says that basically my thoughts verify that I am alive. Like, I'm thinking. I'm alive. I'm here right? I think, therefore I must be because I can think. I exist. 
That word think actually, uh, if I can say it right here, logizma. Logizma, that's the Greek word. It's where we get our word logic. It's kind of interesting. In Christ, logical thinking leads to an illogical peace. Think about that. Logical thinking leads to an illogical peace in Christ. That's the reality. That's what we have. Here's how one person put it. Skip uh, Heitzig. He put it this way. Think on whatever is true because whatever is true is honorable and whatever is honorable is just and whatever is, uh, is just is pure and whatever is pure is lovely and whatever is lovely is commendable. So this is like a package deal of all that is excellent and praiseworthy and one builds on the other and think on these things. And the driving verb again is to think. I need to think. Now we jump over to verse 9 and what's the, what's the key verb here? Well, the key verb here is, is do or practice, depending on your translation. He says, practice these things. And this is the idea of like habitual practice, like I just get in the practice of, of doing these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, says Paul. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God's, Paul's saying like, I'm a model for you. Just look at my life and what you've seen in me. Do those things. Now, the idea that takes shape here is what we talked about earlier in the series is that what I think will then influence what I do, right? What I think will influence what I do. The best way to, to detoxify from the worries of life is up here in my brain. Just, I got to change my thinking. Like, what is worry? But it's just, it's just thoughts that shouldn't be there. And I need to change my thinking. And how I think will influence then what I do. I even think it's pretty fascinating what Paul says there about, you know, what you've seen in me. Like, I have the ability to influence how other people think. Like, shouldn't that be the way it works? Like, we come together and we, you know, we gather together to exhort one another, to encourage one another, and the reality is, is that I can influence how you think and you can influence how I think and we can build each other up. But so you have this thing that, you know, right? Uh, how, how do we say, I think... Therefore I am, I think therefore I do, is what Paul is ultimately saying here. But I'll, I'll add one more to it, right? We talk about this, I, I am therefore I think. Like, do you understand what that means? I am therefore I think. It's like who I am in Christ then should influence how I think. That's the whole we talked about earlier in this series. Like my beliefs, like I believe who I am in Christ Therefore, I think according to that, and as I think according to that, that impacts what I do and how I live my life, and that will certainly affect how much worry I live with. You know, what strikes me here is that when I have these worrisome thoughts, they come from outside of me and they corrupt me. Those are the thoughts that are shaped by my circumstances and they leave me worried and confused. On the other hand, where do the thoughts that Paul describes here come from? They come from the Holy Spirit who indwells me. These thoughts actually come from the God who lives within me. He, he wants to help me think clearly about my situation and my relationships. He doesn't want the toxic emotions of worry and anxiety to consume me, which leads me to make this observation. Again, as I just said, I am, therefore I think. I am, therefore I think. So the first thing we need to do, this first step really, is be careful in my thinking. It all starts with how I think up here. And then it moves down to this one. I need to be active in my worship. I need to be active in my worship. And you want to counter the worry in your life, just, just start to worship. 
Just start to worship. Rejoice in the Lord always. Love that word, always. Like there's never a time. It's not, it's like, don't rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Don't rejoice in the Lord when the sun is shining. Don't rejoice in the Lord when, rejoice in the Lord always. And that would mean you have those times when you're kind of consumed with anxiety. Trading your unreasonable worship for some illogical peace by countering your worry with worship. And the root word there, again, of rejoice is that word joy. And I was thinking, what is rejoicing? But it's joy that is released through worship. And do you, I don't know if you're like me, but I love, you know, I love to sing. I love the worship time here. I just love to sing. And I, I just love to express joy. There's this great joy that pours out when we sing together. And as you, as I hear you guys sing, it just, it just really fills my heart in a powerful way. God fills us up. We pour it back out in praise. You know how that works. And in worship, joy then replaces my worry. And we know how it is, right? Joy is not an emotion. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in me. It's a byproduct of God's presence in my life. That's what joy is. It's not just an emotion. It's so much more. And as I magnify His presence in my life, it will simply drive the worry out of my life. 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. You have an inexpressible joy. You have a joy in you that is, that's the potential of the joy locked up in you. It is so great. It's, it's, it's beyond being able to be expressed. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. You get that? You have a joy that is the result of your faith and your salvation that you came to Christ, you have a joy that is, is a result of that, that no one else in the world can have if they don't know Christ. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Psalms 94, 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your comfort delights my soul. Just know that you, you have so much joy locked up in you, so much more joy. I don't care how many anxious thoughts multiply, you have more than enough joy to transcend any of those anxious thoughts. And what worship does that is so powerful is that worship gets the focus off of me, right? Gets the focus on God. That's exactly what happens to Elijah at the end of, the, at the end of his story as he's running to this cave. Like, he'll, he'll say it. He'll say, Lord, I did this and I did that and I did that. And his focus is on me, me, me. And he lost sight of all that God is and all that God had done. Thinking about worship again, what is worship that drives out, you know, the worry in my life? There's, it can be a worship song that may drive out my worry. It could be a verse of scripture that may drive out my worry. It could just be seeing the hidden beauty in a moment that drives out my worry. It could be simply intentionally focusing my thoughts on Christ. All of that can just drive the worry out of my life. It's kind of like a glass, right? You got a glass and it's maybe half full of water and then half not. Maybe your glass is half full of worship, but, 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 but there's still place for, for, for worry to go in there, right? Just fill your glass with worship. Don't leave any room for worry. I thought this was fascinating. We all know that breathing is essential to life. Each of us takes about 20,000 breaths each day. What is amazing about breathing is that it is an involuntary action. We don't even think about it. 
Our brains are programmed to instinctively monitor the balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. When we breathe deeply, our brains send a message to the rest of our bodies to calm down and relax. When we breathe, we can intentionally lower our heart rate and bring down our stress levels. According to the Mayo Clinic, breathing may help ease symptoms of stress-related disorders and mental health conditions, such as anxiety, uh, general stress, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. With all this in mind, thank you, Apple. Apple has created a notification app for their watch called Breathe. The app reminds users to be mindful and focus on what is important in the moment. Let me just tell you, if you know Christ, you've already got that app. It's the Holy Spirit. It's going to say, just breathe. Just focus on, fo- focus on me. Focus on Christ. Just worship. Picture a little, a little child, a to- toddler in his bed, and a violent storm hits in the middle of the night. What's that toddler do? He runs into his dad's bedroom, into his mom and dad's arms, and climbs into their bed, and it drives out the worry. So a logical piece then feeds off our, off our act of worship, which leads us to this third practical application. I need to be intentional with my thanksgiving. Paul talks about an attitude of thanksgiving that permeates everything I do in my life. Like my whole day is just marked by thanksgiving. I can't stress enough how powerful gratitude and thanksgiving is and what it will do to your stress levels if you simply... Just learn to be thankful. We need to be more intentional about giving thanks. And the reality is thankfulness is really another form of worship, is it not? Like thankfulness is just another form of worship. Now I understand we don't primarily worship God for who He is, right? Or we don't primarily worship God for what He has done, but for who He is. That's primarily where our worship needs to be because if my worship is just rooted in what God has done for me, then if I think God hasn't done for something for me lately, then my worship and my, you know, might take a hit. So I, I primarily worship God just because of who He is, even when He doesn't make sense. But still, I can reflect who He is in my life and what He's doing in my life and how He's working in my life. There is something about that. So think about this, right? We said... A moment ago that uh, uh, worship is, is, is a joy being released through our worship. Here we have Thanksgiving as appreciation being released through our worship. Like that's what Thanksgiving is. I just, in my worship, I'm just releasing my appreciation, my gratitude to God for who he is and for who he is in my life. I heard somebody this week say we need to punctuate each day with truth. Like, before, you, before your feet hit the floor in the morning and before your head hits the pillow at night, punctuate the beginning and ending of every day with truth. Think about what that would look like. Because we hear so many lies. Just, just, just punctuate our day with truth. Maybe it's a specific scripture. Maybe it's a declaration of praise. Maybe it's a song of reflection. Maybe it's a moment of meditation. Or maybe it's a word of thanksgiving. Can you imagine if every day you started and ended every day by just saying, thank you, Lord, for today. Lord, thank you that when I go through my day blank. And at the end of every day, you stop and you said, Lord, thank you today for that flat tire that taught me patience. (laughs) Thank you for that burned meatloaf that tasted so good whatever it might be, but just the ability to stop and say thank you. Psalms 46, 146.1, hallelujah. 
Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. And that, that, that distinctly starts with that word, hala. hala. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word there. To shine, hence to make a show, to boast. And thus to be clamorously foolish, to rave, causatively to celebrate. What if every day we started with a hala in, in our day? Hala for the blessings in your life. Hala for the God who provides them. Hala for another day to praise God and enjoy Him. I don't think I said that exactly right. Hallelujah, I should just say it. What if every day we just, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. And we may not feel like saying hallelujah sometimes, but if you don't feel like saying it and you say it, what will happen? You'll start to feel like saying it some more. That's just the way it works. Reinforce who you are. Reinforce the Holy Spirit in your life. Reinforce your identity in Christ by just giving thanks and thinking on those things that are praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. Here's one other way to understand this connection between worship and gratitude. Like worship is who God is then, and I said this a minute ago, but gratitude is who God is in my life. So I can reflect and I can say, well, God is a provider, but what has he provided for me? God is a creator, but what has he created in me and how has he created me? God is a defender, yet more specifically, how has God defended me? God is comfort, yet more specifically, how has he comforted me? Make this more personal in in your worship. We worship God just because of who he is, but we can also worship him for who he is in our life. And then lastly, I need to be bold in my prayers. I need to be bold in my prayers by prayer and supplication. And you want this illogical piece, this is one avenue, just be bold in your prayers. We're told we can come boldly before the throne of grace, right? But the idea here, just bo- there's nothing too big, nothing too small to bring to God in prayer. Just be bold. Just go boldly to God. Never be concerned like, oh, God, I don't know if I should bring this up or not, but, but would you be concerned about this for me? And God will be concerned about anything, nothing too big, nothing too small. Because let's be honest, compared to God, everything is tiny in our life, right? If we think we have big things and small things in our life, everything is just, compared to God, everything is just tiny to Him. But He cares about everything we go through. So go and talk it over with God. He wants us to come and talk things over with Him because He wants us to know how deeply He cares for us, how deeply He is concerned about us, how much He loves us. He does. And so we get into this, we go to God, and it's kind of like a two-way conversation, like when, when we pray to God, we can pray and we can, we can listen, we can open the scriptures and we can listen and we can let God talk back to us. God can answer me and comfort me and guide me. It's a, an amazing, an amazing, an amazing thing. So many times we get into conversations with people, right? We ask questions and we don't listen for an answer. We do that with God all the time. We'll ask Him something, but we're not really listening for an answer. And you just stop and, 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 and we, we can pray about something and ask and then we can just listen for what God might say. Open the scriptures, read some scriptures, let him respond to us and take that response in. And here's the thing. So being bold, like bold requests, like nothing is too bold of a request for God. Nothing's too small or too big. But then think about this. How about bold responses? Be bold with your response. Think about this. That means that if you pray and you sense that God is opening a door and yet you are still unsure what is on the other side of the door, you walk through the door with boldness. You walk through with boldness responding to God who answered your prayer, opened a door and called you. So many times in our Christian lives we are afraid to walk through doors of opportunity because we're not exactly sure what is on the other side of the door. 
Let's be honest. God wouldn't open the door if he didn't want you to walk through it. He would close it. In fact, in a situation like that where you have an open door and you are not sure what is on the other side, one thing you can know for certain about the other side of the door, you can know for certain that God will be on the other side of the door waiting for you. In fact, you want to know what it's like with God. This is how amazing it is. This is how amazing it is with God in your relationship with him, right? Like, there's a door. And so our bold response is we're going to walk through that door, right? And so here we are. God's right here. He walks through the door with me. And he's waiting for me on the other side. Isn't that cool? Like, yeah, he's everywhere. He's in me, and he walks through the door with me and, and, and gives me the faith to walk through that door. And I get there, and he greets me on the other side. and said, what took you so long? What took you so long? As Christians, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. Right? As believers, we don't need to worry. We just need to be. Let me take you back out to close here to Elijah. And as I thought of all these practical steps today, right, as I thought about these practical steps of being careful in our thinking, of, of replacing my worry with worship and the power of giving thanks and praying with boldness, I thought about Elijah in the cave. And again, I thought about how he lost sight of all that. He stared down seven, he stared down eight, 8,500, really, I think it is false prophets. Saw them all come to their demise. But at the end, he is emotionally and spiritually spent. He's lost his worship, his gratitude. He's lost his prayers. And his thoughts have become me-centered and not God-centered. In fact, you know what he says? He comes to the point. He says this. This is crazy. Here's what he says. I didn't put it on the screen. He says he wants to die. Like, I just want to die. Like, Jezebel's threatening me. I am just so exhausted from this whole ministry thing. It's just been too much. I just want to die. So much for Jezebel. Taking his life, he'll offer it up willingly himself. And he goes out for 40 days. It says it takes him like 40 days, and God sustains him along this path. It's a great story. But at the end of 40 days, he makes his way to this cave. And it's like he's up there in this cave hiding from Jezebel, but it almost seems like he's not just hiding from Jezebel, but like he's hiding from... God? Maybe he's like a little annoyed with God in all of this and how everything has played out. And you just see what happens when our anxiety gets the best of us. Let's read what happens. So he comes to this cave and God arrives at this cave and has a conversation with him in this cave. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came. Now, it's interesting. The word of the Lord came. In a minute, the presence of the Lord will come. But the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. See, I, 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 the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only I am left. And they seek my life to take it away. See why he's worried? For real with anxiety? And he said, the word of the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Ooh, that might make you shake in your boots. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after all, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return to your, your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu to be the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. Ahab's getting replaced. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel's, uh, Abel Medullah, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And he tells Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. There's 7,000 more like you. There's 7,000 more faithful prophets like you. You're not alone. But did you, did you see what's in there that's so fascinating to me, right? Because he says to Elijah, Elijah, why are you here? How do you hear those words this morning? Like when you go through your moments of anxiety, when you feel all alone, how do you hear those words? Like, Elijah, why are you here? And I think we probably think God's up there like, Elijah, what are you doing here? Where's your faith? Get out of this cave. Come on. You just won that great war. And it's like... But no, he didn't, come in the, he, he, he didn't come in the earthquake and in the great wind. He came in a still, small voice to Elijah. You got to hear what he says. He's like, Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing in the cave? We just need to know that. And he talks to him in a, a tender voice like a father. And when we are in those moments, when we are riddled with anxiety and we're struggling, God doesn't come and chew us out and yell at us. and He gives us what we need. He knows what we need, and he knows what Elijah needed here, and he wrapped his arm around him. He felt all alone. You know, Jesus on the cross felt exactly what Elijah felt. He had anxiety. He felt all alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We live in a world filled with all kinds of reasons to be anxious. We're in the middle of a spiritual battle that... Many times we just don't take it that serious. We just don't realize we have an enemy that really wants to shoot us down any way that he can. He wants to discourage us. He wants to defeat us. He wants to ruin our, our, our public witness for him. Lord, thank you that you are so near. You are so close. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to worry. That we just have to be. I mean, we just have to be because everything in those verses, everything that is worthy, uh, praiseworthy, and everything that is beautiful and lovely and pure, and that's who we are in you. That's your identity in us. We just need to be. Help us understand that this week when we're confronted with those moments of, 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 of great trial and great anxiety that confront us, and they'll come. May we just stop and just be and worship you and pray to you look to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.